0: Out here in the perimeter there are no stars out here we is stoned immaculate
1: as if we could be anything else hello and welcome this is david easel this is the c86 show once again digging deep into that gold mine that was indie pop from the golden decade Of the 80s, and this week, you know I love a special guest is going to be the turn of the Bodines. Yes, one of the famous band, one of the famous 22 bands that was on that iconic NME cassette, the C86 cassette. And um, so I spoke to guitarist Paul Brotherton very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. So I've got that interview. But before... We get into the quality chat. I think we should play your favourite and mine. And this, by the way, is taken from a John Peel session back in 85.
0: too much you'd never if I
1: That is the Bodines and that was their track title, Therese, that came, well that was actually from a Janice Long session, yes, remember them, back in uh, the 30th of October 1985 and obviously that, um, that song, not that particular version, was on the famous NME cassette that came out. Yes, you know the year. Anyway, that became the most famous and best-selling NME cassette of all time. And uh, Cherry Red Records brought out a triple CD box set featuring 66 um, top tunes from that golden decade. And if you you haven't got a copy, go and get it. It might just change your life. Anyway, I'm babbling because I'm slightly, I say slightly, I'm really excited because I managed to track down a member of the Bodines, which has taken me years. But I really needed to um, include them on this show because frankly they were that important and i managed to persuade paul brotherton the guitarist to have a chat with me i think he felt a bit sad actually so eventually he said yes okay just to get you out of the way so um this is the interview and um by the end of the show i will give you some more of my exciting admin of how you can contact me and also all the archives as well that i've been compiling for the last three years but this is the interview And this is me, this is Paul. And um, after about five minutes' chat, which was quite exciting, but I did edit that out, this is where I began by asking um, about his own musical background. And this was his reply. Paul, take it away.
2: Well, my first memories are We we moved to Glossop when I was about four and a bit. But I've definitely got memories of the house I lived in before that. So I must have been three or four years old. Um, And I definitely remember... um, listening to Burt Bacharach stuff, Mm -hmm. Um, Dusty Springfield definitely rings a bell, and I I definitely remember a a disc with, you know, the apple in it, so it must have either been Abbey Road or Hey Jude or something like that.
3: Um,
2: So my mum and dad were into very kind of melodic kind of stuff, you know, Jimmy Webb and all that kind of stuff, and I think that definitely has come through me again and again, you know, I mean, I like some kind of droney, kraut, rocky stuff. I would to see Michael Rother on Monday. Um, but in general, I love songs, you know, they're really well written.
1: Yes. Well, it's in
2: chord changes and melodies and, you know, heart-shifting lyrics and all that, you know, and I've never quite been able to shake that off. Uh, yes. So...
1: Well, it was interesting because I, you know, not to give too much weight, but I'm in my mid-50s and I grew up listening. I suppose my mum would have Radio 2 on and I kind of grew up listening to Burt Bacharach, The Carpenters and those kind of songs. Yes, The Carpenters as well, yes. Hugely. (laughs) and, and, And my thing is that if you like The Carpenters, you're definitely going to like Joy Division and the Smiths because, frankly, the lyrics are the same. You know, they are. You know, they deal with the same subject. I mean, how can you not sort of relate to? You know, I say goodbye to love with the Carpenters, as you know. Well, Joy Karen's Division. Karen's
2: voice is quite doomy as
1: well, isn't it? In, well, in a
2: beautiful kind of way.
1: Yeah. Well, her, the lyrics that she sung. I mean, all their songs were like. Doomed love and loneliness, and it's like right—that's that's Ian Curtis <laughs> and Morrissey, isn't it? I, that's my yeah. theory, and I can see, you know. And so, yes, yeah, so I listen to. You know, I don't know what that program. What's the recipe today, Jim? You know, Jimmy Young on the radio too. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I seem yeah. to remember that. So that was my background to, to Well, think. we're
2: a similar age. I'm fifty-three, so yeah, we've, we've probably had a fairly similar musical upbringing. Right.
1: Yeah. Yes. So that was that was it. And then obviously, one started listening to or watching Top of the Pops in that early seventies period. Where oh yeah you know, we wanted to be in Gary's Gang, which was obviously not a good place to be. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, Rock and Roll, is it Rock and Roll Part 2, is it? You know, yeah. Rock and Roll, that one, that still sounds pretty good.
1: It, it sounds amazing. And then Sweet, Blockbuster, <laughs> all that, f- yeah. you know. I mean, they were just great. And then, I, I suppose, my moment, and luckily my first single was the David Bowie Space Oddity one, which came out, and I... Well,
2: that's, funnily enough, that's the first single... I got my mum to buy for me, not the original, because that was like yes. late 60s, wasn't it? You know, and it was re released
1: It was 74, 75. And yeah,
2: so I would have been, what, about seven or eight years old? Yeah, well, yeah.
1: I, I, I probably did exactly the same. And, and then I listened to the B-side, which had changes and um, Velvet Goldmine on the B-side. I thought, God, B-sides are brilliant. You know, I didn't rely... From there on, it went down, didn't it? But well, everyone
2: but, always tries to claim that their first record they bought was Dead Cool, so to, to blow that out of the water, I think at the same time, or the same month anyway, I bought also bought Whispering Grass by Windsor Davis
1: and Donna Stell. Which is a classic. I think my second <laughs> Well, my second was Rod Stewart's sailing, you know, which I think well you know, I so quite well. like that actually. Well there was a programme I you know, God we reminiscent. But there was a programme in I don't know, about some ship, navy ship and it started with that song and I was Yeah, but it
2: was it about the Art Royal or something yeah, that it was the bell with
1: me. And she was you know, he was with Brick Eklund and we all just thought that was kind of normal, so that was it. Really. So look, <laughs> yeah. what happened then when you picked up a guitar? When was that music? Because I never did that next thing of actually trying to be in a band. I just listened to music religiously.
2: Yeah, well, I, I, was, I was always into music a, a lot. But, you know, to be honest, I, I, I wasn't really one of the sort of hipsters at school or anything. You know, I, I used to listen to a lot of old sort of records of my mum and dad's and my uncles and aunties. You know, I loved all the sort of 60s stuff. Uh, you know, and then I uh, sort of went punk up and I got bang into the sort of pistols and all that and Susie and the Banshees and stuff but I was never I wouldn't pretend that I was like you know one of the sort of dudes who walks around his hometown like David Bowie or anything but I was quite nerdy about music I really liked it yes but I wasn't planning to be a guitar player myself my mum bought um, like an acoustic folky guitar when I was about 13 and she went to sort of night school and did it for about three weeks and then sacked it off and it sort of sat there in the corner and I, sort of, I started picking it up and messing around with it and I mean I don't know if you've ever tried to learn it but it, like you can do sort of four hours on a piano and you can actually sort of hammer out a few chords and sort of have a go at Penny Lane and things like that you know what I mean but yeah. the guitar it's, it's really really hard and everyone's absolutely terrible for ages because it's really hard to squeeze the strings down and your fingers just don't go where you want and stuff like that yes so I just sort of, sort of messed around for a sort of desultory you know on and off kind of thing for about a year um, and I was rubbish I just couldn't get it at all you know um, and then I blacked me with my dad to get me um, they used to have these guitars called K um, that were like 29 pounds I think they were the absolute cheapest of the cheap electric guitars. And I got one of those for Christmas. Um so I would have been about fourteen or something. Uh and me and my cousin started to try and work out to play sort of buzzcock songs and things like that. Uh, and I started to get it together a little bit, but it was still slow going. And then suddenly all of a sudden like the dam sort of burst and when I was sort of fifteen I went from being absolutely rubbish to in six months to, to being able to play loads and loads of things and work out quite complex songs with difficult chords and things like that so I don't know quite what happened it was like a dam waiting to burst yes. then I got the bug then and I was like doing like three or four hours a night working out everything I could and stuff so by the time I was sort of 16 17 I was ready to get in the proper band I was you know, yes, because I, I can remember... accomplished, yeah.
1: Yes, because I can remember someone sort of lended me, lend me an acoustic guitar and it was just like impossible to hold the strings down and, and yes. you'd have these little figures <laughs> for these chords and you'd be strumming away thinking, that just sounds horrible. I, yeah, I, no, I, you're I'd, I'd you not unique in that. <laughs> yes, and then you'd just go, I'd just rather play a record and enjoy that than spend another hour yeah. of my life torturing my fingers.
2: Well, I'm a scientist, so I'm a bit of a you know, on the spectrum, nerd, I suppose. I was quite determined to sort of, you know, at least get something out of it eventually, yeah.
1: Because I've put down, you know, this is a theory which obviously is not watertight, so being a scientist, yeah. you'll probably care. Because I put indie pop down from the years of 83 to 87, which was the years of the Smiths, obviously. Um, yeah. <laughs> and you obviously must have been kind of around being from that famous capital city of the world that seemed to, we all, you know... Looked on, you know, I, we, I'm based in Norwich, so look, Norwich doesn't have yeah. a great musical scene. We've got the Farmer's Boys, Sirius Drinking, and the Higsons. It's not going to go down in the record. Kathy Dennis, isn't she? Kathy Dennis, actually, you're right. She came along and wrote a song for Kylie. But we're not, but you know, like a few years ago, Cherry Red Records brought out that seven CD box set of bands from Manchester. So there, was there something kind of bubbling in the aura of or the fog? Not in
2: 83, definitely not. Really? Um. No, I mean, I think I, I was maybe first time I went to the Ascend was maybe 84, I think. Right. Um, and midweek, it, it was, you know, because it used to be like an ex boat showroom or whatever. So it was a big, sort of cavernous sort of place when it wasn't full. Uh, and you go on a Wednesday night and there'd be about like 60 people there or something and sort of all moping about, too cool for school and stuff. It was rubbish, like, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, but I think things. Did start to change, and, and I, we were obviously, as you, we won't be surprised to hear, that we were all like absolutely mad for the Smiths and everything. Yes. Um, you know, the, when I first saw that video for this Charming Man with all the gladioli strewn everywhere and stuff, you know, and it had my favourite sort of Rick and Maka guitar, and I thought, yes, this is what this is what I wanted. And I don't want all these doomy kind of post punk bands. This is what I wanted. I love sort of you know Revolver and all that kind of stuff. You know? Yes. So it was like a light bulb going on, like, yes, yes, this, you know, kind of wanting to play that kind of stuff anyway, but it was almost kind of um, validation that you could play, you know, tuneful, catchy, sharp kind of guitar-y kind of stuff, you know what I mean? It was uplifting and fun and not too po-faced and dirge you know yeah. what I mean? Well, there's, um,
1: well it's interesting because you also had... I mean, obviously, there's all those bands that are on that compilation, but people like Easter House were around as well, and yeah, yeah, we played a few gigs with them. Yeah, you know, they were uh, terrible hogs
2: for the sound check, though. <laughs> <laughs> they, they would... you know, because if we supported them at, at first, and um, you know, they would do a sound check that lasted like all afternoon, so we got sort of like ten minutes because they wanted us to sound shit. You know, I mean we always tried not to be like that I mean a lot of bands who supported us went on to have really good careers, like the Happy Mondays and uh, you know in Spiral Carpets and all these kind of bands and stuff so we've tried not to be 12 <laughs> that,
1: yes, wasn't, well, that, that
2: wasn't um, some people were it was very gamesmanshipy like that sort of thing yeah but you were yeah. you,
1: but you were a four-piece. So did it yeah. sort of because cause like I sort of probably you know as I said at the beginning, you know most bands have that five years. But the first bit, for the first twelve eighteen months, most people are just kind of working out a sound and getting themselves together. How long did it take your you know the Bodines to sort of go? Oh, actually, this has beginning to sound like a proper band now.
2: It was quite quick, I think, because I think Mick and Tim had been writing in their bedrooms for a few weeks or maybe even a few months or whatever um and i don't know if he'd tried many guitars but i think they hadn't had any luck or anything and i didn't really know them because they'd gone to the catholic school and i'd gone to the you know the proddy school or whatever uh i thought you know you kind of knew them from playing school football matches and that, that kind of thing but i wasn't like pally with them or anything uh somebody sort of suggested we should play together but i first went to tim's and he, he played us a song which actually was on, ended up on our album where it was called the back door right um and he he, he played me the sort of chords to that and i just sort of knocked out you know we, looking back he's a really great great riff one of my best ones i think um and it just gelled immediately in about sort of 20 minutes and he recorded it and played it to mick and he even though i think because we weren't really part of the same gang and we weren't into the same kind of music and all this kind of thing. I think they were a bit, mm, but they, I think they liked the guitar playing so much that they thought, oh, well, we'll go with it anyway. And I think that kind of creative tension was quite good, actually, because we yes. all brought different, different ideas and different things to it. And, you know, if you kind of all like the same stuff, it sometimes it you end up sounding like a tribute act, don't you? So. Well,
1: I guess that is the danger. But it's interesting you mentioned about the rift, because I always remember David Bowie saying that he was always looking for his Jeff Beck and then he found Mick Ronson and then he, yeah. and he and he and he always meant he always mentioned Jimmy Page, you know, sort of giving him a, a riff that he said, you know, he used for years later. So as a me being a complete non-musician, what you know, what does what creates that memorable riff? You know, what is it that because a lot of bands obviously you think that's that's good, but it's not memorable. And then you hear something like this charming man or any kind of classic, and you think, God, there's something kind of special there. So what what gave you that moment of thinking, yeah, that's a winner? Did you... I was... I I don't think I've consciously thought it, but I suppose if the
2: other guitar and the bass was doing a certain kind of melodic thing, I would try and cut across it and and rhythmically and melodically try and and make it go against the grain a bit so it would make you go, ooh, what's that kind of thing? Yes. Uh, And like I said, you know, like sort of for example, Therese, you know, the one that's on C86. Yes, yeah,
1: the classic. I,
2: mean, I probably shouldn't fess this up, but I'll, I'll do it now. I'll come clean. Um, <laughs> did, what gave me the idea for that riff was a, a White Snake song, believe
1: it or not. Excellent. I know, that's a you know, guil- guilty pleasure, isn't it?
2: I haven't ripped it off. It's not the same, but it was a kind of sort of strummy White, you know, that. White Snake live album or whatever. I mean, I didn't have it, I must uh, hasten to add, but somebody I knew at school had it. Yes. And it was just a really nice sort of strummy bit, so, you know, when it was sort of coming together, I thought, well, it's sort of C and D and all. I'll just try these kind of shapes that I remember was in this White Snake song, and then just sort of made something using the same kind of shape, but going against the grain, and it just sounded fab. So I think sort of, it helps if you've kind of Messed around with it a long time, you've got loads of kind of places to go to, and you've. You know, to yes. me, it's like the 10,000 hours thing, you know, it's all money in the bank for when you have to need to come up with something, you know, to me, against the odds and that.
1: Well, it is the, yes, the Malcolm Gladwell is quite something, isn't it, really? I can't remember, is it 10,000 or 100,000 hours? I think he's 10, 100,000 sounds way too long. I think he sort of worked out. I know one of the things was the Beatles, you know, Sergeant Pepper, and he sort of worked out how many hours they would have been playing before they did that. And then, you know, in a way, cobbled together lots of other examples from people like Steve Jobs. So, yes, it was quite interesting. Because, yes, going back to that fantastic five-year theory. Well, no, before that, the one thing that I also noticed with bands at that period was... Being unemployed was quite important. Having a year or two, being able to sort of claim unemployment, you know, which is basically like having a bit of a grant, wasn't it, while being a musician. I know some yeah. people Some people thought that was terrible, but it was just job seekers allowance, enterprise allowance, unemployment. You know, you've got a bit of money, you've got your rent, you've got your council tax paid, and then you could just be a musician 24-7 for that period of time. And then if that clicked and John Peel gave you that play, that would kind of suddenly give you that, National kind of recognition. I
2: mean, that was a common story, but I don't think that was quite true in our case because, you know, I was... When the band started, I was doing my A-levels, I think. Uh, and then when we kind of first got well-known and started getting in the press and stuff, I was actually doing my first year at university. Right. It was only when we got, like, a major deal that I had to make a choice of either going for it full-time or, you know, sacking it off and being staying at uni. So, you know, I thought... I spoke to my dad, actually, and, you know, your dad's supposed to be the sensible one, isn't he? And he said, yes. look, you, you can go to university again any time you like, but you'll, uh, you'll never get another record deal. And uh, he was right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's bizarre, but when you're that age, you think everything, you have to get everything done and be kind of, like, sorted and, and know everything before you're, I don't know, 21 or something. But actually... Going back to university, and th- you said, know, Yeah, you know, now I look and think, oh, 30 is so young. But then when you're 20, you're thinking, My God, by then I need to have everything done, sorted. Yeah. yeah. I need to know what no, I'm doing. No, so I did
2: have to leave after the first year, to, you know, because we got a major sort of record deal and stuff like that. But before then, we, most of us were kind of grafting in the day. And um, we were looking. my dad had a little kind of engineering workshop that had a, a little room upstairs. So we could set our gear up there, leave it set up there, and go whenever we wanted, which was quite a, uh, a boon, actually, you know, compared to sort of having to hire a room out for three hours and shift all your gear in and out and all that kind of stuff. Yes. So it meant we could sort of go and play for as long as we wanted, sort of four or five nights a week, which we did. So, you know, by the time we got our first gig, you know, which was at the Hacienda, which I can scarcely believe now, um, we were actually really tight because we were playing five nights a week, you know, doing the same... Sort of twelve songs again and again and again and stuff. So. Well, it's interesting yeah.
1: because because being you know a fan of pop and rock, you know, sort of, I you know, basically I'm trying to say I just watch a lot of documentaries. You know, you know, I, I need to get out more, but I do love watching you know rock documentaries, and it's interesting. Yeah. bands like the Beatles, you know, Black Sabbath, even Twisted Sister, I watched. and they just played live a lot and then it was like suddenly you know and they might not have got anywhere fast but then suddenly things clicked and it's like okay you know like black sabbath i think you know they recorded that first album in an afternoon it's like well we've been playing it for years now we know it back to front you know we can just go Yeah, yeah you know there isn't going to be a problem we do know this painfully well and the same with Twisted Sister who I didn't like at all but I found you know the <laughs> film about Twisted Sister was quite fascinating you know and it I, don't come, really,
2: that sounds, I like you don't always have to like the band to be interested in their stories yeah think, and yeah. it was just
1: like no bizarrely I mean no record company wanted them because of the image but they were sort of a huge live act which now seems crazy but you know it's like no we're definitely not going to sign a band like that but they but basically <laughs> they just had to keep playing live just to keep it going and so when they you know when the moment came they were absolutely on it and people thought, my God, you're brilliant. It's like, yeah, but we, we've been playing live for years. We we know everything there is about how to entertain no, and an audience. No, I honestly
2: don't think we were ever as tight again as we were around that first time when we did our first gig and then we went to play for McGee in London and we did we did the first sort of few gigs that got us well-known and got us in the NME And all. I don't think we were ever quite as tight or as good as that again, you know what I mean? Because um, we were just playing every night and, you know, sort of, Jazz musicians and people, I'd say sometimes you get into this kind of syncopated groove type thing and it very rarely happened but just occasionally you'd be strumming your guitar and you'd feel like a kind of jazz drummer and you could just do anything and it only happened very fleetingly but I sort of got a little glimpse of what it must be like to be a really
1: fantastic
2: musician, you know what I mean? Yes,
1: in a tight band.
2: You have to be so tight that you're not even thinking about playing and concentrating on what you're doing yeah you go beyond that you you go into a different level but yes it's very rare and it only happened a handful of times to me but it's anyway. interesting
1: you know with people like captain beefheart and frank zappa i suppose they would got to that point of kind of genius that they could start working on some subconscious basis or level yeah yeah you know
2: but you have to have like everything else already in place don't you so you take that as red you know what yes. i mean Whereas you know you can spot a pub band that's not really together and stuff, and they they're really concentrating on what they're doing, and it sounds really stilted, doesn't it?
3: Oh, you know, especially goodness.
2: when they play like a Stones song or something like that, and they can't swing like Keith and Charlie, and it's just ghastly, isn't it?
1: Well, well, <laughs> you yeah, know, well, if they try and do a Smiths number, it sounds like God, that is awful. You know, you do really think I must leave the room because it does sound a bit like they're going to be. <laughs> it's like Johnny Be Good, but. Singing this charming man, and it's like I have no, because heard... the, the Smiths were a great, actually underrated unit.
2: Uh, I think I would love to have been in their rehearsal room with them. I bet they sounded fabulous, uh... yes.
1: Well, I think you know, the three of them, the you know, the yeah, the Mick, um, was it Mick, Johnny, and um, oh god, James, was it James? No, who's the other member? Not my you know, the three musicians, they must have just had a really good yes understand amongst themselves because when you listen to the records they do sound phenomenal actually really powerful but yeah and
2: um, uh, f- we went to see them we um the night when they played um oh god which, what was it on top of the, the first night they were on top of the pops was it um what difference was it matter was it this charming man i, I think,
1: think it was, what it was. I would go for the former than the latter, but that's my... Yeah, I
2: think it was, yeah. But they flew back up to the Hacienda and played later on that evening after being on top of the Pops. Um, And the Hacienda was full. Um, But I was fought my way to the front, and I was actually sat on the monitor speakers. I think there's um, there's a bootleg of it, and you can actually hear me Talking down the mic at one point because Morrissey was handing the mic round to all the Wallies who were sat on the monitor speakers.
3: Excellent.
1: I did have
2: it for years. I had a a, a carnation that he gave me, so oh. but uh, it's not survived.
1: No, years, no. So then, so you you know the band started in eighty five, and then you got on that famous cassette the C86 cassette. So was it, cause it was Neil Taylor and some other one. So did somebody approach you and say, look, you could be part of this indie scene. Did you, uh, did you think, God, we are part of the indie scene or was it like whatever?
2: I, to be honest with you, I can't remember the chronology now and stuff. I think we'd already been in the NME in 85, I think. So we were already a bit known. Um, the, the way we got going was because we'd just been rehearsing completely. Um, and we we hadn't played any gigs at all. And then they had, they had this sort of Battle of the Bands night on at the Hacienda. Um, so we just sent a cassette off to that and they said, yeah, come and play. So our very first gig was at the Hacienda and I've never been so scared in my life, you know. The very first, not just the band's first gig, but my first, well, all of our first ever gig, you know what I mean?
0: Yes.
2: Uh, and it was terrifying. But it went all right, actually, surprisingly. Um, and then I think, Tim was always the um, the kind of obsessive who was into fanzines and all that kind of stuff. And I forget which fanzine it was now, but he sent us. We, we we all chipped in, and you know, sort of Saturdays or um uh, earnings or whatever. And we all went to this little project studio in Sheffield, and we recorded three songs, like a demo. Um, And he sent this cassette off to him, and this guy said, oh, I really like it. He said, I've played it to Alan McGee, and he really likes it. Uh, So the next thing we knew is Alan McGee was coming up to Manchester, and he wanted to meet us. So we were like, fucking hell, you know.
1: Oh, sorry, I shouldn't have said that for the (laughs) (laughs) radio. But all the same, yes. Um,
2: So before you knew it, it all happened with kind of breakneck speed. Um, He was like, I want to do a single with you. And then very soon after that, we were in... Oh, King's Cross, I think it was in London, because the train used to go overhead, and you'd have to re- re-record the take again, and things like. I was so near so underneath the train line, I think. Right. And it was um, "Slaughter Joe," you know, Joe Foster producing it, our first single, and so so then we got we got reviewed in the NME after that and stuff like. That. And, we, and McGee got us down to play in London with kind of. Um, Was it the Jasmine Minks, I think, and people like that?
1: Yes, Um, there's the Scottish connection.
2: Cracking uh, review for cracking live review Saying you know we'd wipe the floor with the Minks and all this, and so all of a sudden in in like sort of two or three months we'd gone from just rehearsing in a room upstairs of an engineering workshop uh, to like having a cracking. A me live review and a single on the way out, and stuff like that. So it was all like a bit of a nosebleed, really.
3: Yes, <laughs>
1: yeah. it was fast. And then obviously, yes, the cassette came out and sort of sold incredibly well. But you'd sort of, yes, yeah, so you did several records, on, tracks, singles on Creation Records, and then you signed for Magnet Records. Yeah, <laughs>
2: that was a bad move in retrospect, I think. Yeah,
1: right. So were you, was it just like, oh, actually, this is. Is, did did you ever get an offer for Creation Records to stay with them, or was it just? Uh... I don't. I can't remember the details. I think they they would have
2: carried on a bit, but I, remember, I think we got the vibe, if I remember rightly, that they, they were they had their sort of favourites who they wanted to push, and um, maybe we wouldn't have been their top priority. I suppose
1: Jesus and the Mary Chain were their faves, weren't they? Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, but I think really it's hard to think much at that time, but. It was a massive dichotomy. I mean, it was almost like sort of you know leavers and remainers now, being an indie band and being a major let band.
1: Yes, this is true. And if you, if
2: you crossed over from one to the other, you sort of you suddenly became an un-person. Well, yes, but, well, that
1: happened with um, Sonic Youth, who went from, I think, STT Records or SST Records to yeah. um, Warner, didn't they, WEA, and everyone was like, oh, my God, we need to debate this for a day. You think, God, we used to really get upset about things like that, didn't we? Oh, yeah, I mean, I would have <laughs> been quite happy to stay on an indie label. And, yes.
2: But the thing is, if you wanted to sort of, become big as it were you you had to at some point go to a major and start getting on top of the pots and you know selling records and being big or whatever and a lot of it was about making the jump at the right time you know what I mean if you you sort of went too early or you put the wrong record out you sort of were released after a year and that was your career over but if you stayed on an indie label you sort of became yesterday's news and so it was all you know it's all just a gamble and we're only like 18.
1: 19. Well, quite because so. you, um, because the out the out your debut album played was produced by the one and only Ian Brody,
2: yes,
1: which must have was that because at the time, I mean, he'd been in big in Japan, hadn't he, and was all part of yeah. that kind of fantastic Liverpool Jane Casey, you know, Holly Johnson sort of gig, yeah, so, yeah. So, so we were a bit in awe of him when we met
2: him, obviously, like, well, quite.
1: Know and and one thing that I've noticed and speaking to quite a lot of people having a good producer engineer is like key because sometimes it like that experience can be great and sometimes it's like god that was not a good experience so well I think you... it was it was both with Brody actually um, I mean our
2: first thing was called God Bless that was with Slaughter Joe or whatever Joe Foster um, and that's really really raw and I really like it I think it sounds like it's all Bo Diddley and really kind of you know what I mean? But it was done in hours with no frills or anything like that. Yes. It was pretty much how we sounded live, that, you know what I mean? Um, and then the second single, once we'd, um, we, went, we did it in um, the famous Amazon studio in Liverpool. Um, and I'd never met, none of us had met Brody before, I don't think. But we knew we'd sort of done Echoing the Bunnyman's first album. And like I said, we knew all his sort of pedigree and all that. So, you know, we felt really sort of, happy and privileged to, and uh, for some reason I arrived about two hours before the rest of them um, so I was, felt quite inhibited but he was really nice you know we just sat around swapping like guitarists playing monkey songs and things yes. like that he, he, couldn't, he couldn't have been nicer and really put me at my ease and all that Um, and, but we were just recorded that one pretty straight really and the first version of Therese and, and it was great and, I, and he definitely gave it more of a sheen and he suggested a few little overdubs for the guitar where you should double things you know just little bits like that that made it sound bigger and more polished and that and that was great but by the time it came to the album you know it was a major behind it and he was on bigger money and unfortunately for us it was just around the time that um, you know people started playing to midi tracks and stuff like that and record producers wanting it bang in time so that they could you know put MIDI stuff on top of it and all that you know what I mean yes. so he made poor John wasn't used to it at all spend about two days just playing so he could play to this click track and have it, keep having to drop in and drop in and I think the theory was then that you know real drummers speed up and slow down a bit but now we, because of technology we can put it perfectly in time so it'll sound absolutely fantastic you know what I mean well, it does if you're on a craft work or the Human League or something. Yes. But if you're a sort of pop group, it sounds deathly. It doesn't speed up or slow down. It takes all the dynamics and all the life out of it. And I hated all that. I couldn't put my finger on why, but there was just so much political pressure from the label and from the producer and all that. You no, know, you've got to play to the clip track. It's got to be all in time. Um, and then the, the production at that time was all big cavernous drums and and kind of everything was kind of squished a bit you know to me I, I wanted it to sound like orange juice's first album or revolver yes. you know when the guitar's really quite abrasive and they cut through and stuff like that and it just kind of had this even tempo sort of marshmallow squished condensed production and i just hated it and it, it absolutely killed it for
1: <laughs> oh God, what a shame! Because it's interesting you mentioned the click track. Because I don't know if you've seen that film that's come out on um the wedding present doing George Best. um No, but, I haven't. I'd like to do, see that. But yes. do you watch it? Because there's a lot about the drummer, the click track, and the producer, and it gets oh, I will
2: sympathise with that. Yeah, and it, and it gets really <laughs> nice So
1: they somewhere down the line, you know, the, the producer. Gets kind of pushed and the drug... played football with them <laughs> yes well there 's a huge bit there 's a you know that 's kind of one of the key moments of that film, actually, this whole problem with the uh, production, which is again, being a fan, you just think, but this was indie music, no one really was that bothered about it being perfect, and also well, the interesting thing because there was two things in the eighties there were the kind of the, was the whole red wedge movement and the miners' strike, yeah. and so there was that political thing, so you really had to. Now your are you know, colours to the mask. I think that's the, the term. And also there was the production, you know, because the reason I suppose there was a lot of reasons I like indie music, but there was the production sound, which was like quite DIY-ish. And then you had the mainstream, which was that kind of Trevor Horn, you know, Tina Turner sound, Dire Straits, which I didn't like. And it sounds really yeah. dated now. And I know that David, and David Bowie's 80s stuff, they've had it remixed recently where they've taken all that, 80s sheen quality you know the
2: big phil collins reverby drums. yeah so they've they've
1: so they went back and removed a lot of that from the bowie albums and it's like oh yes this sounds much better and and it was interesting because those artists that came along who had been big and then came into the 80s like bowie and I don't know. Say people like Robert Plant and Rod Stewart. Yeah, they're not great examples, but their '80s work is dreadful because they kind of yeah. were following the the trend rather than saying, "Actually, we'll we'll do what we want." It's like, "Oh, what what do we need to do? You need to get this producer, needed to get that sign, and we need to get you on top of the pops with this video." And it's like they look back and you think, mm, "Yeah, that was not a good period." Well, we see things better produced. You know, some of Bowie's sort
2: of massive '80s kind of productions or Just two guitar players, like, on Golden Years or something. I know which I prefer.
1: (laughs) I know. Well, absolutely. You know, and it's a bit like... And you think, I don't really care about, you know, the click track and stuff. You just, you know, because that's not the essence, is it? You just think, God, you know, really. But I
2: distinctly remember, you know, having to go in to listen to one of our mixes on the album and saying, it's just...
1: I can't hear all the
2: instruments. It all just sounds like a mush, and the drums are just like... uh." And I remember Brody getting a bit sharp and saying, oh, for fuck's sake, kind of thing. You know what I mean? And uh, we'd go off and play pool for a couple of hours and come back in. I was like, it sounds exactly the same. And then there was a real kind of frost in the And I was just thinking, this isn't a battle I'm going to win. This album is not going to sound like Revolver or You Can't Hide Your Love Forever. And yes. there's not a lot I could do about
1: it. <laughs> yes. So obviously when that came out, did you then tour it and sort of, or did it just, trip you up a bit because I have to say but to say just going back the Smith's first album I think sounds really hard to listen to now and then you hear yeah, you ha-
2: Wimpy isn't it and
1: then, then you hear a Hat Full of Hollow and you think oh brilliant Dale Griffith from, yeah. you know the John Peel sessions
2: or even the track The Queen Is Dad, you know he's got some Balls to it, hasn't it? Yes. I mean? but that first, um, that
1: first album was like, oh god, I, don't, I couldn't believe that anyone would, you know, you don't hear the genius in the Smiths on that first album at all. Well, I
2: think a lot of 80s producers just lost the plot. I think they were, they were too busy trying to get technology and, be, and have one upmanship about what gear and what kind of stuff they were using and stuff like that. You know, if you go back a few years, I don't like even stuff I never used to listen to at the time, like the Yes album. You know, Yours is No Disgrace. Oh, yes. Listen listen to the drums and bass on that. They're just live, but just brilliant musicians, just recorded, really, really dry. There's no reverb on it at all. And you can hear every single note, and and it sounds fabulous, even if you don't like the band or the song. The production is just amazing, and I think it actually went backwards in the 80s in a lot of ways.
1: Yes, it's interesting. So then when... You you know you and the band you have that first album and then then what happens next do you then you're touring and then thinking well what do we yes what is the dynamic
2: well we, we went to make we made a couple of pop videos in Los Angeles for our we made I think it was three singles maybe four singles on magnet I can't remember now but it was pretty clear that you know you had a year and if you hadn't got on top of the pops and had loads of girls sort of screaming after you, you'd, you'd be out on your ear sort of thing, so the pressure was on a bit um, so we made a, a couple of good singles I thought and uh, we made went to Los Angeles and made some pop videos from which are really good actually, I really like them um, but I think we missed getting on the Radio 1 playlist by one place I think mm. um, and I think it was because, I think uh, what's it called when they go around and File the records in the chart research
1: Oh shop. right, that
2: pay over, or whatever. I don't know No, it's not pay over. Is it? You no. know what I mean? Yes. Someone... I think they, I think they spotted a sort of dodgy pattern or something, so we got knocked off a load of sales or something. That so you know it's all these sort of hard luck stories. But we, we could have been on the radio on playlist and been on top of the pots if if that hadn't have happened. And so who knows, it might have been different. But I mean, I'm not bothered anyway. I, I can't. I don't think the band would have lasted. Very long, anyway. It was was meant to be a a rush and an end. We were never going to be a 20-year career sort of band. No,
1: because you did, there was, yes, because there was Therese, Skanking Queen, Slip Slide, and then that was on Magnet, and then you did Decide on Play Hard. So was that that the period or the point where things were starting to come to an end?
2: Yeah, because uh, uh, Tim and John both left, um, bass and drums so yeah we we had a uh, different musician we, we got spencer in who, who later ended up in the fall he was in, in interstellar at the time Um, as our drummer Um actually i thought we, we sounded great we, we we played really well and so, but we, you know what i mean you've been doing it for two or three years you're not a novelty anymore you know yes. people things move on down and new bands come out and all of a sudden you're kind of yesterday's news and and I was getting bored of that, kind of sat round in South Manchester all day. You know, I was ready for a change in my life. So. Yes. So did yeah. you
1: did you have a moment where you all sat down and said, shall we just knock on the head? Or did you just not turn up one day to a rehearsal?
2: No, I think we all sort of left one by one. I think Tim left first, I think, and then John left. And then I was in it for a bit longer with Mick, and then he, I... And I just got sick of the whole thing, the whole vibe of it. I just wanted a different kind of life, so I, I just said I'm packing it in. You know, in Dry Bar, I think. Yeah. Uh, I think they had, they did a handful of more gigs, but I think that was it. And then uh, I think Mick started another band after that. So yeah, uh, yeah. It just kind of I don't know. It's every it has its day, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> well, yes,
1: absolutely. I think, and when you look back, though, we not those bands like I don't know, Simple Minds or U two. As you know, that period. But you think, God, you did manage to keep it going, and and to the an extent people like Echo and the Bunnymen. But you know, those those some of those bands, you think, God, you really had perseverance to keep. But my theory is,
2: I mean, you can agree with me or disagree with me, is that if you're the sort of band that has kind of sort of epic kind of songs and big sound and stuff like that you can move over to that kind of stadium-y kind of thing and and have a big career like that Uh, I think if you do sort of three minute scratchy pop songs I can't ever see you sort of doing a big stadium gig and having a 30 year career you know what I mean you're meant to leave a handful of great little
1: 7 inch singles and then sort off out of there. <laughs> <laughs> I know. this Well, I know. And it's funny because the Chameleons, if you listen to them yeah. recently, they've got a really big sound and you think, God. Oh, they
2: have, yeah. It,
1: it's like production-wise, they're very different to any other indie band. They would hate to be called an indie band. No, yeah, well, but they, they could have made the
2: progression to be Simple Minds if it had happened that way for them, I think. Yes. Yeah.
1: So did the band, well, did you ever reform again or, or sort of come back together to do, because I can't remember if you did anything else with creation records
2: no um i mean it's been the odd people try to get it together and stuff like that. i don't think it'll ever well it? no. it'll never happen and i don't think nick even plays guitar anymore
3: no i don't think he even
2: has one at home um i think john's in a, another band um tim's had a few elf issues and stuff like that so it's it's not going to happen basically and i'm quite glad yes so that's, at the tempo of our, you know, something like "God Bless" is really fast, not tempo. He's meant to be played by skinny eighteen-year-olds, not a load of, you know, bald middle-aged guys, like you know. Yes. Although I'm the only bald one, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The rest of them have still got a full heads of hair. Yeah.
1: Which is, and did you? Because I know Cherry Red, um, they reissued, I think, or they put out, didn't they? Your the the album played with with bonus material. So is it quite nice as a as a sort of because it was your work projects as a in your youth. Is it nice to sort of have it night you know archived and and sort of there for the public. I
2: I don't actually own it. Somebody sent me a copy of it, but honestly, I don't like the album. I don't like the sound of it. I really don't. So I I, I don't like to listen to it. I, I I quite like the first couple of singles and stuff. Yes. Um uh, And if anyone ever had any early recordings of gigs. I'd really like to listen to them. Uh, there's one night, I think we played at the, the Russell Club, I think it was. You know, the one that's in the 24-hour party people? Oh, yeah. Film? We played there, you know, bef- before we were really well known, but we were a bit well known. And um, our, our then manager, Nathan, who answered manage the Happy Mondays and all that, he, some black or other, he managed to get this girl who was um, Simply Red's sound engineer. For you know 50 quid or something and everyone who saw us that night just said you've never ever sounded as good ever so you know, if anyone ever recorded that show i'd really like to hear that one
3: yes
1: absolutely
2: <laughs> and do you i've a, never heard it yeah
1: no and as a musician do you sort of you know having got there do you still occasionally you know just kind of like enjoy playing guitar or did you just put it to one side and say nah. oh no no
2: I've still got loads of guitar. I've got a little recording studio in my bedroom. Uh, I still do stuff. I mean, I've had kids, so, I mean, my kids are... One's just off to uni and one's doing their A-levels. Um, you know, I'm, I am still... I haven't had time to do anything full-time, but I would like to do something, you know. Yes. Maybe stuff for films or write songs for other people. No, i never stop playing. It's a it's an addiction. You know, I've got a banjo, I've got about six guitars, I've got a bass and...
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's great. Because I know that it's funny because Ivor from Easterhouse, I mean, he still makes little records and, well, not little, but, you know, still puts out stuff, you know. And there's, there's nothing about the old band. It's like just wanting to play music still. And I often wonder. Oh, yeah. Um, I know, I will do that, definitely.
2: My daughter will be off to uni in a year's time, and I'm I'm going to get my head down and do. Something. I've got loads of songs, you know. And so, yeah. It's yes. just time and having to earn a living and
1: well absolutely and what would you I mean you know having that experience what would you say to uh, your 18 year old self and when I ask that it's often like what What did you sort of pick up over the years during that period that you reflect and think god that would have been a really that was you know the wisdom that one gets as, as you have experience I suppose that's what I'm trying to say
2: yeah well I think you can't really relive it because it's like regret anything in life at the time you made the the decision you thought was right based on what you had available to you. You know what I mean? You can't really go back and second-guess it now. No.
3: Um,
2: but what I would say is it, it's the best way to... I mean, my me, me son's a bit musical, but not particularly, but he's hes mad into cricket. He, nearly, he was nearly a professional, and he, he played at a very high level. And he got that kind of camaraderie of doing really difficult thing, you know, opening the batting against Yorkshire and things like that, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and it's that kind of us against the world kind of thing and that, those experiences are the ones that are much more meaningful to you than just sort of hanging around in the pub or going to parties or whatever. It, yes. It really gives you a sort of sense of achievement to do something that's very difficult and to sort of, you know, maybe not be successful but do it on your own terms and and, and do something that you're proud of and, You know, sleeping under Brighton Pier and touring Germany and making a video on Venice Beach, they're all like sort of fab memories and stuff that you don't forget. And you play me New Order in Canada and all that kind of stuff. So. You know, it's a great way to spend your teens in the early 20s, well, and early twenties. Well, yes, I than didn't... having a proper job and that. But
1: well, <laughs> I'm sure you learnt. this a lot of life skills you did. So you did tour quite a bit as a band. You know, not just the UK, but you know, Europe and.
2: We didn't do much abroad. No, we did one tour of Germany. And uh, we we had to drive through East Germany to West Berlin, as it then was, which was quite exciting. Yes. You know, having, having all our gear searched by sort of communist border guards. The
1: Stasi. And, like
0: <laughs>
2: and uh, yeah, and we did a, a bit of a Canadian tour supporting New Order, which was interesting,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, no, it's good. Did you ever play Norwich? Yes. Um, is it like an arts centre there Yes, or the arts in, in an old church.
2: Yes. Um... Although I think my football hooligan younger brother got into a fight and disgraced us as, as quite often happened because, I mean, that was one of the things about creation, you know, the bands like The Loft and things like that, they were quite sort of arts boys, you know, art school boys.
1: Yes, Pete Astor.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, we, we played a few gigs with them and they'd have all their sort of girly friends with them and to would be all like sort of Emily Bronte and stuff like that and... You no, know, very nice, but, you know, just not like a load of northern football hoolies or and whatever. And We'd we have all our yobo beer monster friends. <laughs> Never the twain met.
3: <laughs> yes, this is true. I,
1: yes, I forget, you know, the 70s, the Manchester hooligans, especially the United yeah. fans.
2: Most of our friends and fans were kind of yeah, football hooligans, initially, anyway, yeah.
1: There you go. That is the interview with Paul Brotherton from the Bodines. A huge thank you for giving me the time. I so appreciate it. And um, now I'll stop hassling you. But anyway, this has been David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Go to at C86 Show. And um, as I often say, so I will repeat myself. um, Yes, just keep it positive and groovy. Otherwise, don't bother. And also, um, yes, all these shows have been archived. So you can find them on Podbean. Mixcloud, a, um, God now I've gone blank, Podbean, and um, iTunes. How could I forget iTunes? So Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, Mixcloud, The Magic Four, Just Go To C86 Show, they're all there. Three years of me chatting to indie bands. I must get out more. Anyway, look, I'm going to leave you with another track by the band. Again, taken from the John John Peel, the Janice Long Session. This is Scar Tissue. Have a great week.